you will join me in John chapter 8, John 8, this morning we will look at verses 31 and 32. If you are using the blue ESV Bibles, you can find that on page 894, 894. The title of our sermon is Life Giving Truth. Our keywords for our worshipers and training are truth, free, and life. Now, as Americans, one of the things that we love to talk about a lot is freedom. And I'm really glad about that. I think the freedom that we talk about and enjoy can only come really from a Christian worldview. But there's an interesting contrast when it comes to how we speak about freedom as a nation of people and how we discuss our freedom as Christians. When we look at our independence as a nation... We celebrate Independence Day on July 4th. It's the day when America achieved self-rule. Our nation's founders achieved that. But if you think about the Christian, the Independence Day for the Christian is the day when we relinquish self-rule. Now, as a nation, the objective was to escape the sovereign rule of a king. As a Christian... The objective is that we would put ourselves under the sovereign rule of a king. In fact, of the king of kings. And in this short text we're looking at this morning, Jesus is saying the only way you're going to find freedom is if you continue in my word, receive my word, and obey my word as king. Now, I will say that the uh, apparent distinction, the contrast between uh, a nation and individual uh, achieving true freedom is more apparent than real because Jesus wasn't talking about political freedom. The church, since its inception, has always believed that political freedom is critical for religious freedom and a, a good thing, a thing worth dying for because Christianity believes in truth. The church is one place in the world forever that, uh, that the passion for freedom has never died out. Why? Because freedom is the product of truth. And in our passage, we'll see Jesus talking to us and telling us that without truth, there is no freedom. It's the truth that sets you free. You see, Christian understanding of truth comes from God. It comes from the Bible, and so freedom isn't actually something that can be legislated. It can't be controlled by a dictator. It can't be controlled by the media, very pertinent to our day. It can't be, uh, it can't be um, changed or redefined by society. So the church doesn't look at the climate of a culture to get their truth or to redefine the truth. The, the modern, in, the, in modern parlance, the truth is what it is. So Christians don't get truth from a permissive society nor from an oppressive society. In a permissive society, like, for example, most of Europe today, Christians always look very conservative. However, in oppressive societies, like China, for example, Christians will always look like radical liberals. That's because Christians have always had the ability to be radicals in every country because they're able to judge the culture with a standard of truth that doesn't come from the culture itself. So you see, without truth, there is no freedom because you're beholden to what you're told 
and not what is actually necessarily true. Now listen, as important as political freedom is, I believe it is important, in our text and all throughout his ministry, Jesus is talking about freedom that is even more fundamental than political freedom, and without which your political freedom is of no comfort whatsoever. And as we continue in our series this morning, uh, talking about spiritual depression, this idea of freedom is of vital importance. One of the hallmarks of spiritual depression in a person's life, as we talked about last week, is that they're believing lies. Lies about God, lies about themselves, lies about the world and how it works. Spiritual depression is a false gospel that needs to be repealed with the truth. And it's only when that happens that we experience true freedom. Unfortunately, we, we want to think of freedom in the same way in our spiritual lives as we do as a nation, and it gets us into trouble because unlike political freedom, a Christian says to themselves as an individual, the day that I relinquish my autonomy, the day I relinquish my self-rule was the day I found my freedom. But here's the thing, anyone who has ever really and truly understood this Anyone who has really understood what being a Christian really means has never believed that giving up our self-rule is some kind of tyrannical or repressive thing, but exactly the opposite. Giving up your autonomy in a spiritual sense to gain freedom is something that is great. It's something that our heart needs, that we might arise from spiritual depression, to arise from self-autonomy, to know and believe and focus on the work of God in our lives and, and reject the false gospels that we tend to preach to ourselves. Are you in bondage to spiritual depression? Are you longing in the midst of that to be set free? Well, let's see how Jesus responds. We don't get several texts this morning, but we will begin in John chapter 8 and verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, spiritual freedom and political freedom agree on what freedom feels like. In fact, in some ways, it's the definition of freedom across the board. It's how we define it and how it feels. Freedom is the fulfillment that comes from doing what you most deeply desire and having the ability to do it. But the difference between Christianity and what we say versus what a society says is that if you know that man is not what he ought to be, If you know the human being is selfish and sinful and self-centered and self-absorbed, your desires are at war with each other. So freedom isn't actually the ability to do anything that you want. No, freedom actually happens when we obey our genuine, innate, heartfelt desires. Those desires that God has put in our hearts. Because the things that we most desire to do is to be fulfilled by submitting to our Creator. That's what we were built for. But we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to that reality. 
So you won't likely find many people who disagree with freedom being the fulfillment that comes from doing what we most deeply desire. But the Bible tells us that only happens when we're willing to completely depend upon God. So how does that work? Where does Jesus direct us? If you, if you were to come to me in a state of spiritual depression and we were to talk about this, this is where we were going to go as we're dealing with this morning. So some of you, uh, we've had this conversation. You may be saying this sounds a lot like some conversation we've had in his office. It is. I'm not very original. I'm very sorry about that. But God's word is sufficient, and I trust that his word gives us all that we need. So if you're not hearing it for the first time, that's okay. It is still good for all of us. So what does true Christian freedom look like that we might find light in the darkness of our souls in the days or weeks or months that we may endure spiritual depression? The first thing Jesus says in our text is that we must abide in the word of God. Now, throughout the Bible, the English word abide is used in various ways. But in this instance, Jesus is saying, if you stay put in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Abide, remain, stay put, do not be moved away from. And that's just plain, simple, helpful wisdom, isn't it? If we are to experience the freedom away from spiritual depression, our minds must be fixed on the Word of God. We must abide in the truth. We cannot let the false gospels we are prone to tell ourselves dwell in our minds and dwell in our hearts. We must fight to expel falsehood and hold on to the truth. However, I have enough experience with those who have walked through seasons of spiritual depression to know how difficult this is. The mind can be foggy. Thinking about anything is difficult sometimes in that period. So sustaining our thoughts on something like Scripture can feel impossible. But this is why I said we must fight to expel the falsehood and hold on to the truth. Your mind, like the rest of you, has the effects of the fall inflicted upon it. We see that all throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul says the mind is hardened. 1 Timothy 6.5, he calls the mind depraved. In Ephesians 4.18, he said men are darkened in their understanding and alienated from life with God. Romans 1.21, he says our thinking has become futile and foolish because men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He warns against being taken captive by philosophy. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So we can't be naive about what we're up against. If there's a place in our lives to abide in the Word of God, something drastic has to happen for us to overcome all of the obstacles that exist just within our minds. Now, of course, most essentially... We must be born again. But we also must be continually renewed by the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul writes in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. Every single day is a battle for the Christian to not be conformed to the world. Every day is a battle to renew our minds. Every day we must wage a war between our ears. Our minds need to be renewed every day. And one of the ways we begin to lose the battle and fall into spiritual depression is we stop fighting. We believe the lie that we can make it through the day without our minds and our hearts being fixed upon, abiding in, resting in the Word of God. But Jesus puts all of that faulty thinking to death in a very simple statement here. He says, if you stay put in my Word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, there's quite a few similar statements throughout Scripture. Uh, last week, briefly, I mentioned 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does that mean? It's easy to say such things. They're, they're certainly uh, good. It sounds good. It sounds right. But we need to ask, what does that mean exactly? Take every thought captive. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, one thing that it looks like is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. I'd like for you to turn there and look at that with me. I want you to see this. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Paul begins, he's going to begin this passage with an imperative. And he says here, put off being anxious. And put on prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. But then he goes into further detail on how to be able to continue to walk in the peace of God. Look at the text. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So how does Paul direct us here in this text to take every thought captive? How can we abide in the truth? How can we stay put in the word? He says, think about these things, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise. Think about these things. In other words, set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on the truth of God's word, the promises of God, instead of dwelling on your circumstances, instead of dwelling on the things of this world that bring about anxiety. Instead of the things that are ultimately bringing you away from what God has done and is doing and into areas of fleeting concern that are temporary. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we find ourselves in a state of spiritual depression is because we are prone to fix all of our attention on our current circumstances. And all of us have different issues. All of us have things that raise our eyebrows differently than others. We have situations that elicit different responses from us depending what we care about. But we all have things that we need to be particularly aware of that tend to move our thinking and move our hearts away from thinking about these things and dwelling on lesser things. 
that slowly but surely begin to cloud our minds and keep us from hoping in and having trust in God and all that He has promised. But if we are truly free, we will realize, I don't have to live with these things taking me away from abiding in the truth. Trials will come and go. Difficult seasons of life will come and go. Suffering will come and go, but the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. So where do I want to set my mind and my heart? The things that come and go? No, I want to abide on that which stands forever. But let's take it a step further. And our second point this morning, if I want to abide in God's word, where should I look that I might find my way out of despair, that I might find light in the midst of darkness? I must believe the promises of God. If I'm going to be helped out of my spiritual depression by the word of God, I must fix my mind and my heart on the right things in God's word, namely God's promises. Now, of course, we want to look at God's promises appropriately. We need to see them in the proper context. We need to know that they're actually promises for us and not for another group of people or a specific person in the Bible. But there are many promises in God's Word for the believer. This week, I'm going to send out some helpful resources for us to help with this. But let's just see one example of what this looks like in action. Again, from our text, if we abide in God's word, which is truth, the truth, Jesus says, will set us free. Free from anxiety, free from spiritual depression, free from the darkness that we can rightly, joyfully, and faithfully walk in the light. But I want to look at another example. Look at Psalm 77. Psalm 77. This is a psalm of despair. We have the writer of the psalm despairing. He's sleepless. He's overcome with fear. He's overcome with anxiety. And he thinks about God, and he actually becomes more pained. He has many questions about God and his, his seeming absence in his life in the midst of his miseries. Look at Psalm 77. Look at verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Have you been there? When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? It seems so hopeless. It seems so dark. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you might be there right now. And if, if not, it may be very, uh, very well that you might find yourself in that place at some point. 
We are humans. We are frail. We are prone to weakness of faith and assurance, and, and, and our spiritual lives may be very dry at times, and this may be the cry of our hearts. And, and isn't it merciful of God to include this in His Word, the experience of His people, that we know we're not alone? We're left with a Bible that, makes it, uh, that, that, that doesn't make it look like we have to have it all together, but we see the brokenness, we see the anguish, we see the pain that comes with life in a fallen world as, as we desire to walk in holiness, we desire to walk in communion with God. It's merciful of God to have this in His Word, to have allowed the writers of Scripture to be so honest with their pens that we too can be honest before God, but... I want, to, I want us to see that this is not the end of the psalm. What happens next? The psalmist is in despair. He's very honest of where he is. Has the Lord forgotten to be gracious to me? But he begins to abide in the truth. He begins to set his mind thinking on the things that Paul has outlined for us. Look at verse 10. Then I said... I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deeps trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. The, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What is he describing here? He is describing here the Israelites standing with Moses and Aaron. On one side, they are locked in by the sea. On the other side, they're about to be slaughtered by Pharaoh's army. There was no obvious escape. What were they going to do? Now, we can look at Moses' situation here, and we can say, Brother, don't despair. Now, can you imagine? (laughs) How am I not supposed to despair right now? I'm either going to drown or have my head cut off. But the psalmist, he recalls like we can. He's able to, he's able to recount the full story. He knew what happened. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the waters. You led your people like a flock by the hand. What's his point? Why does he do this? Why does he go here? Listen, your circumstances are not the same as what Moses encountered, but your God is the same. The same God who delivered the Israelites through the sea calls you son or daughter. And he knows your heart, and he knows your circumstances, and he has you right where you are for your good so that you will become more like Jesus Christ. God will see you through your circumstances. Do you feel surrounded? Do you feel helpless? Do you feel like there's nowhere to go? You can use God's word just like the psalmist does here. 
as a pledge of God's character to get you through whatever's before you and whatever surrounds you in recounting your own uh, spiritual depression and using God's promises to abide in the truth that you might know, that you might know hope in the midst of darkness. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I like in my times of trouble to find a promise which exactly fits my need and then to put my finger on it and say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove that it is so by carrying it out in my case. I believe in the full inspiration of Scripture and I humbly look to the Lord for the full fulfillment of every sentence that he has put on record. Brothers and sisters, we have a compassionate God, and he loves to bless us in our times of need and weakness, but we must use the things that he has given us. He holds at his word. He gives us his word to abide in in our times of weakness, in the darkness of days of our souls, that we would look to his promises. But we must go to God's word, that we might find hope and assurance once again. It's here. It's in God's word At the end of what Jesus promises, and our final point this morning is fulfilled. The spiritually oppressed person must know the true freedom of God. Abiding in truth, believing the promises of God, leads us to an understanding of truth that sets us free. We can truly know freedom, spiritual freedom, not just as saved people, but save people who live each day in the peace of God, knowing his pleasure and enjoying communion with him. There are many things we can look at that help us orient our minds and our hearts rightly, thinking about what's true and life-giving. We could think on God's character and attributes. We could reflect on his sovereignty and his loving kindness. We could meditate on great theological truths like our adoption or the atonement that comes through Christ. But in our times of greatest despair, I believe we find the most freedom in recounting all of the benefits of having God as our portion. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 24 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. That's a significant phrase we see in the Old Testament several times. It alludes to the dividing of the land of Canaan among the Israelites by lot. Remember, each tribe was given a specific portion of land, and that was theirs where they could dwell, where they could rest fully satisfied in the pleasant land that was given to them. So saying the Lord is our portion is to say that we rest fully satisfied, though afflicted, though sorely distressed on all accounts, We are satisfied in the Lord, and we hope in him. And he supports and bears up our spirits from fainting and sinking into the evil day. So you have not only a witness above you, you have witness within you. And so while the days may seem dark and your heart may feel cold, you can have a firm resolve, you can have hope in the Lord and sweetly trust in the Lord. And quietly and patiently wait upon the Lord until God should reveal light in the darkness and turn your sad winter into a blessed summer. Now, you really appreciate that if you're coming from the Midwest. Now, I know 
We've looked at quite a few texts this morning, but I'm wanting to illustrate for us exactly what we're talking about, this abiding in the Word of God in a very practical way. Using God's Word in all of its various forms that we might know the true freedom of God. So the last text this morning for us to look at is Psalm 103. Psalm 103. We can see that that truth is being given to deliberately remember and abide in for the children of God. Finding hope in God's promises and benefits. This is the very purpose of Psalm 103. Look at verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Now, he's doing what we've talked about through this whole series, isn't he? What is he doing? He's preaching to himself. He's telling his soul, do not forget the benefits of God. It's critical that we do this very important practice in our lives, preaching to ourselves the truth. When trials come, when anxieties rise in our hearts, when we are unassured of our standing with God, when we feel deserted and alone, we need to preach to ourselves and we need to remember the benefits of God. And we need to do just as the psalmist and counsel ourselves to remember what God has done for us. What are they? Well, I, I believe there are at least 19 of them here, and I, I promise I'm not going to give you details of all of them, but I do want to list them so that you can use this text for yourself, that you can look at this, and don't feel like you have to speed through and write them all down. I will send them to you so you can relax and you get finger cramps trying to write all this down. First, verse 3. He pardons all of your iniquities. Again, verse 3, secondly, he heals all of your diseases. If not, immediately he will when he returns. Third, verse 4, he redeems your life, not only your soul, from the pit of destruction and hopelessness. Fourth, verse 4, he loves you, is kind to you, and feels compassion towards you. Fifth, verse 5, he fills you to full with good things. Sixth, verse 5, he renews your strength, causing you to soar like eagles. Seventh, verses 6 and verse 7 illustrates this. He acts in righteousness and justice toward the oppressed. Eighth, verse 8, he is merciful. Ninth, verse 8, he is gracious. Tenth, Verse 8, he is slow to anger. He's not short-fused. Eleventh, verse 8, he abounds in loving kindness. He pours it out. It doesn't come out in trickles. It is dumped out on you. Twelfth, verse 9, he will not hold on to his anger against you. That has already been taken care of in Jesus Christ. Thirteenth, verse 10, he has not treated you as your sins deserve. 14th, verse 11, His loving kindness is great toward those who continue to fear Him. 15th, verse 12, He has removed your transgressions and their punishments far from you. 16th, verses 13 and 14, He has compassion on your frail, weakened frame. 17th, verse 17, his loving kindness is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. 
18th, verse 17, his righteousness is to children's children. In other words, he will be faithful to his promises towards you. And 19th, verse 19, his sovereign rule remains over all, which includes every single detail of your life. These are the benefits of God that the psalmist outlines for us. And this is just one passage. This is one text to turn to in which we must abide in. That truth that sets us free. And it's rich, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, we serve a great God with so many benefits bestowed upon us. He has promised us far more than we could ever hope for, than we could ever ask for, than we could ever imagine. And certainly if we understand who we are in light of who He is, it is far greater than anything any of us deserve. But of course we must acknowledge that we do know these promises are ours, but they're only ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing of this benefits us apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of his sinless life, it is because of his death on the cross, it is because of his glorious resurrection on our behalf that we can turn to these promises, we can see the benefits of God, and we can abide in them. And friend, if you do not know Christ... The promises of God are only but glimpses to you of what is available and yet unknown and unexperienced by you. If you have faith in Christ, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that apart from Him, you have nothing in your life apart from sin and a rebellion against your Creator, He, he can, by faith, grant you true repentance. You can walk in the newness of life in hope and in peace, knowing that the pleasure of God is found in communion with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the Lord is your portion, there's nothing to fear. There's no reason for despair because He will fill you up with all you need to overflowing measure because our Lord is a Lord who delivers to His people grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That is a life-giving truth that will set us free. Brothers and sisters, we must abide in the Word of God. We must remember the promises of God. We can know true freedom in God as we reflect upon, rest in all of His benefits and all the ways He has worked for us and is working in us and through us in the Lord Jesus Christ.